Um, The reading is taken from Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 1. And it came about that when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it upon his head as he reclined at the table. But the twelve disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For the poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume upon my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done shall also be spoken of in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him the teacher says my time is at hand I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples and the disciples did as Jesus had directed him and they prepared the Passover now when evening had come he was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples and as they were eating he said truly I say to you that one of you will betray me and being deeply grieved they each one began to say to him surely not I lord And he answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The son of man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, surely it's not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. If you were to take a look at the deaths of the founders of the main religions around the world, they all look fairly similar. Think of Abraham. Abraham, a meaning father of many nations. He died when he was 175 years old, surrounded by his children, 12 tribes of Israel, stem from his loins. Think of Buddha. Uh, Buddha dies at the age of 80. He's surrounded by a host of devotees he dies in peaceful serenity at the end of his life think of muhammad the founder of islam he dies in his 60s he was the first political ruler to rule over a united arabia he dies in the arms of his wife but then you come to christianity 
And Christianity is very different. You have a man called Jesus who died at the age of 33. Didn't die surrounded by his loved ones, but he had a ministry that was three years in length at most. And when he dies, no peace, no serenity, no great family. He's alienated by his own people. He's killed at the hands of the Romans. He's abandoned by most of his friends. And if you believe what the Bible says, he's abandoned even by his father, God himself. He's completely alone. And so here's the question. It's logical because the founders of Judaism and Islam, it's logical that people would follow them because they are people of peace and there's fruitfulness and there's a religion that on the exterior looks like it works, there's fruitfulness. And so you can understand perhaps why people follow those three world religions. But why do people follow Christianity? When it's a founder dies, his life is thwarted, his ministry is cut short. Why, why does Christianity prosper to such a great degree? Why does it uh, develop and expand globally at such a great pace? The answer is the cross. Why do Christians say, I want to know Christ? I want to glory in the cross, as Paul says in the book of Galatians. Why do people understand the cross not as just an instrument of shame, humiliation and torture and death? Why do people say, I want to know more of Jesus? I want to know and own the cross of which he died upon. I want to own his sacrifice. I want to own his resurrection life. Why do Christians want that when it's so different from the other world religions? I think the answer is found in this passage. Jesus Christ, as he explains the significance of the cross, explains why Christianity exploded like wildfire and he explains why it's the truth that the world needs to hear. He explains why the cross is not just an instrument of torture, but God in his son, Jesus Christ, transforms the instrument of torture into an instrument of redemption, an instrument of rescue. Not just an instrument by which power in a person's life is dissipated. The cross, Jesus Christ's cross, is an instrument of power that sees lives resurrected to the degree they understand the cross of Christ. And that's what this passage explains. Verses 17 to verse 29 will be our territory today of Matthew chapter 26. We've been going very quick through Matthew's gospel. Now we're going to slow down on the next four weeks. We'll be spending our time in Matthew chapter 26. But this is what Jesus teaches us about the importance of the cross of Christ. This is what he says. He explains its meaning. He explains it's important. He explains its purpose. It's, uh, it's meaning, it's importance, it's, it's purpose, but also the need we have not just to understand the cross, but the need and the importance that there is to apply it to our lives, to apply it to our lives, to take it into our persons, to apply it to our spirits. So it's not just an event that needs to be understood. We need to take it into ourselves. And uh, the Last Supper is what it's all about. Let, let's look at that together. Here's the importance of the death of Jesus. It begins in verse 19 of Matthew 26. The importance of his death. This is what it says. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Prepared the Passover. You cannot understand the importance of Jesus's 
Last Supper, which really could be called the First Supper, unless you understand the Passover. Now, what was the Passover? The Passover is an event, the significant event of redemption in the Old Testament in the history of God's people. Israel had been slaves for many years under the heel of Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. And there was going to be a great act of redemption, the greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament. And they were to eat this meal just the night before God was going to act uniquely and supremely to rescue his people. And after they've eaten it once, God comes to them again and says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, I want you to eat this meal, the meal of the Passover. I want you to eat it and have it explained to you again and again and again throughout all generations. I want you to remember through every generation that great night of deliverance and its significance and its importance. I do not want you to forget it. What I did by liberating my people from Pharaoh's heel in the land of Egypt, it's the Passover feast. The, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is another way of saying it. I don't want you to forget it. I want you to remember what I did. And so I want you to have this meal in perpetuity. And that's what's happening in Matthew chapter 26. They're having a Passover meal. Look at verse 26 of Matthew chapter 26 with me. This is what it says. While they were eating, Jesus takes bread he took bread, he gives thanks, and he broke it, and he gives it to his disciples, saying, and then the chapter goes on. Now, this means that Jesus is the host, because this meal, the Passover meal, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, is not just to be eaten, it's to be explained. And if you're doing it in a family setting, then it would be normally the, the father of the household. He would be the host. He would explain what's going on. If it's in a synagogue setting, then it would be uh, the leader of the synagogue who would act as the host. So Jesus gets up or he stays seated and he acts as the host and he explains the Passover meal. And this is what the host would say. They would say, this is the bread of of affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. They suffered that we would be delivered. Those were the words that were uttered every time Passover was enjoyed and commemorated and celebrated. This is bread of our reflection. But Jesus, did you notice what he says in Matthew chapter 26? He says, not our, it's not, this is not historical. This is not just to remember an event in history. Jesus takes up the bread and he says, no, this is the bread of my affliction. He redefines and reapplies and reemphasizes the importance of the Passover. It's not just historical. It's not just in the past. For Jesus, it's something new. This is bread of my affliction. This is the bread through which I'm going to carry out not just a historical deliverance, but I'm going to do something new. I'm going to rescue not just the people of Israel in the Old Testament. I'm going to rescue the Israel of my name, the Israel, which is the Israel by faith, not of just uh, ethnic identity. Anyone who trusts in Jesus by faith will be the new people of God, the new Israel. And Jesus says, this is bread of my affliction. What I'm about to do, what I'm about to suffer is going to be something that every Passover meal that has ever been enjoyed in any home, in any synagogue, in any setting, in any temple, in any tabernacle, 
points to what I'm going to do. It's prepared you for this very moment. This is bread of my affliction. But I'm going to redeem you not just from political slavery. I'm not going to redeem you just from the land of Egypt. I'm going to do something that every Passover meal has prepared you for. All of the history of Israel has prepared you for this very important moment. Every return from exile has prepared you for this moment. Every deliverance from any tyrant throughout the history of my people has made you ready for this. Every substitute of any and every animal, every Passover meal has prepared you for this moment. Absolutely everything. This is the bread of my affliction. And isn't it interesting, if you know something of the New Testament, in every gospel, and the Apostle Paul says it too in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is the only moment from the life of Jesus that he says to his church throughout the ages, you need to repeat this again and again and again. This is a moment and what it symbolizes that I never ever want you to forget. Do this in remembrance of me, says Jesus. Isn't it interesting that Jesus does not choose to dramatize his teaching? Jesus does not even choose to dramatize his resurrection. Jesus does choose to put in perpetuity his death. It's the central cornerstone, the foundational event of Christianity. Because Jesus says, unless you understand the significance and internalize the importance of my death, you will not understand my message. And so you need to remember the reason that I came. You need to understand and grasp the importance of my death. It's the only event in all of his life and ministry that Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me and keep on doing it until I return for a second time. It's the importance of his death, but it's also the purpose. The purpose, there's no point just understanding it's an important event, right? Unless you understand the purpose of his death. And that's what Jesus goes on to explain now, the purpose of his death. The real question is not just that the death of Jesus is important. You need to understand why. Why is it important? Look at verse 27. Jesus, then he took the cup, he gave thanks, and he offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now look at verse 28. We've got 27 and 28 on the screen, poured out for many. Now, that word for in the English language can mean many different things, right? You can say this is a a mask for you. Here is a letter for you. Here's a gift for you. And it's a present that you've prepared. Um, Spoiler alert, next Sunday is Mothering Sunday. Get prepared. And you can say, hey, mum, here's a gift for you. I, I love you. Here's a card that I've made for you. But that's not how it's used in verse 27 and 28. And it's not how it's used any time. The Lord's table is remembered. This word for is a key word because it means on behalf of. That's another way that you could say for. Jesus is saying my blood is poured out on your behalf. It's poured out in your stead. 
My life is given in your place and for your sake. This is the language of self-substitution, sacrificial self-substitution. Jesus is saying, I died in your place. I am your substitute. I mean, a football, a sporting substitute doesn't really cut it. This is Jesus saying, I'm giving my life for you. I'm dying in your place. When the Jewish people had a Passover meal, there were three elements to the meal. There was the unleavened bread because the meal was made in haste as the Jewish people were delivered out of Egypt. But then there was four cups of wine. Exodus 6, the promises that God gives in Exodus 6, four glasses of wine, four cups of wine. And those four promises from Exodus 6 were rehearsed around the Passover meal. But the bread and the wine were not the main event. The main event was the lamb. The main event was the lamb. The whole point was the meal to point to the events of Passover, where God said to Pharaoh through Moses's lips again and again, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. And again and again, Pharaoh said, no, 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 no. And finally, God says to Moses, there's one event. I'm going to send a final stroke, a final act, a final plague, and then you will be released. I will send the angel of the judgment, the angel of death, and that and that alone will stop the oppression. It will stop the violence and my people will be liberated. I will strike down the firstborn son of every family in Egypt. And then Pharaoh will let you go. On that night, the night before it happens, or rather the night it happens, you need to celebrate the Passover. But the central event is the lamb, not the bread, not the wine. Why is it called Passover? because of the provision that God made to rescue his people. You take the lamb, you see, you can see on the screen, and you sacrifice the lamb, and you take the blood of the lamb, and in every home who chose to obey what God said, the lamb would be put around the door frame, and the angel of death would see the blood of the lamb, and he would pass over that household. You would not be saved unless you put the blood of the lamb over your door jam, over the lintel, over the door frame, and take shelter under the blood. The angel would not see the wood. The angel would see the blood. And in every home in Egypt, there was either a dead lamb or there was a dead son. In other words, every firstborn son who survived that night could look down at the lamb and say, this lamb died for me. It's either a dead lamb or it was a dead son. The angel either visited or he passed over. And he only passed over the homes where blood was placed around the door. And in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus picks up the bread and says, this is the bread of my affliction. This is the cup of the new covenant. And we're supposed to think, wait a minute, where's the main course? There's no main course. Did you notice in Matthew 26, Jesus never refers to the lamb? We don't know, but Jesus never pointed to a lamb, we presume. And you think, why is that? Jesus would not have forgotten. So what's he saying? He's not saying there's no lamb here in Matthew 26. There was a lamb there. But the lamb was himself. 
Jesus himself is the lamb. Jesus himself is a sacrificial offering. Jesus is the one who's offering himself as a sacrifice on our behalf to God. Jesus is trying to explain something very profound. He's saying, do you really think, do you really believe that our, our firstborn children in Egypt, that they were saved because of some woolly little lamb that was sacrificed? It's a symbol, even back then, and through every Passover feast and every feast of unleavened bread since, every sacrificial offering pointed forward to Jesus. And Jesus says, I am the sacrifice you really need. I am the substitute that God has provided for them, but also for you. Do you think how different this is from every other world religion? Every other world religion, I say this respectfully, says the relationship that you can have with God is based on your merit. It's based on your effort. It's based on your achievement. It's based on your commitment to the God of Islam and Buddha and Confucius and the other gods of the world religions. It's based on your commitment to that God and your efforts and your endeavor and your achievement. It's your achievement to them. Christianity turns that on its head and says from the lips of Jesus, no, Christianity is different. Christianity is based on God's commitment to you. It's not about if you work really hard. Your salvation is based on God's commitment to you. Verse 28 says that. This is the blood of the covenant. As we gather around the table shortly, we will remember this. This is the blood of God's covenant that he has made between himself, between God the Father and God the Son. Covenant that we could never keep. God makes that can never, ever be broken based on his achievement and his sacrificial death on the cross. Here is how much I am committed to you. We are to remember that every time we share in the bread and the wine. Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you. I have died in your place. I've died in your stead. I am the only way that you can be restored. That's why the death of Jesus is so important. And that's the real purpose that Jesus died in our place as our substitute. But that's not all. We don't just need to understand why. We need to apply that truth to ourselves. And that's what Jesus points us to in verses 26 and 27 again. How do we apply the death of Jesus to ourselves? So it's not just out there, not just remaining important. How do we apply the truth to our hearts? Here's how. Verse 26 and 27 was me. What does Jesus tell us to do every time we have the Passover meal? Verse 26, Jesus says, you need to eat it. You need to take the bread and eat it. Verse 27, you need to take the cup and you need to drink it. Now, you might think you're stating the obvious, but Jesus is saying something very profound. You need to take this means of grace as the church fathers have called it this means of grace and you need to internalize the truth of it you can have this great meal before you and not eat it and not be sustained by it so to be sustained by the spirit of god through the meal that god has provided for us you need to take and you need to eat you need to take and you need to drink 
This is a representational meal, I believe, that Jesus has given to the church throughout the centuries. And as we understand through the words of Jesus, the death of Jesus, as we take in the bread and the blood, symbolic of Jesus's body and his life giving blood, as we take that in the Holy Spirit, I believe internalizes the truth of the gospel into our hearts afresh and sustains us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper until he comes. He brings the cross into view. He empowers his people afresh to live for him and to understand afresh this, the life-giving death of Jesus. It's the purpose of the Holy of the Supper to sustain God's people for works of service and to enjoy and appreciate the sacrificial saviour, Jesus Christ. That's what the supper does. It sustains the church. It empowers the church. It, it brings the cross of Christ into fresh 3D-ness every time we enjoy the supper together. It empowers God's people. Are you suffering this morning? Here's what I mean. Are you suffering this morning? The cross means as you take in the bread and the cup, it reminds you that you have a God in Jesus who has wounds is the only God who has wounds. So if you suffer and suffering is a mystery under the hand of a loving and God, a good God who is purposeful in the pain that he leads us through and is with us in the midst of suffering can be used by God redemptively. It can be used for his purpose to refine us and to mature us. The cross reminds us of that and the lord's supper reminds us of the cross of christ so if you're suffering the lord's supper ministers into that pain are you feeling guilty this morning are you reminded of of guilt and you're tempted to despair the lord's supper leads you to the cross and it reminds you that jesus died in your place for you so that now you don't carry that burden anymore Jesus took it from you and he carried it on your behalf. And so you can live in his grace. The cross mediates to you through the Lord's Supper. If you're suffering and if you're guilty and when you bring it into the center of your heart, it restores your relationship with your father through the son, Jesus. That's the job of the Holy Spirit to do that. And, he, and Jesus meets with his people in a peculiar and a unique and an empowering way through the Lord's Supper. And you become a person who values and treasures and glories in the cross of Christ. You'll be filled with confidence because you see the depth of the love of God for you seen in his son. You'll be filled with humility. How can an arrogant person come before the cross and see that Jesus died in your place? You live in the strength of his life-giving death and his resurrection it's nothing you've done grace is a received gift it's unlike any world religion and so you can live a humble life an empowered life a strengthened life a grace saturated life as you internalize the power of the cross through the lord's supper one last thing verse 29 verse 29 jesus says i tell you i will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom, in my father's kingdom. Look, there's a moment in the return of the king, J.R. Tolkien's final part of the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings. P. 
Pippin is facing the terrible Witch King. You can see a picture on the screen. He's about to come in and to destroy all of his enemies, all of the people of Condor, all the good guys will be wiped away. It looks like it's the most terrible moment. It looks like it's all over. And suddenly Pippin hears horns in the distance. He hears horns in the distance. And what are the horns? The horns are from the cavalry. The horns are from the cavalry charge of the riders of Rohan. And the riders led by the king of Rohan ride to their death to save Pippin and to save the city. All the goodies are rescued. But here's what the book says. The book says from that moment on, whenever Pippin heard a horn's blast, he couldn't receive it without tears. Whenever he heard a horn blast, not just in that moment, but in the future, it was like a living memory of his rescue, of his salvation, that the king of Rohan died so that Pippin and the others might be rescued. And he couldn't hear a horn blast in the future without looking back and remembering that moment. Christians, you know what I'm going to say? The Lord's Supper, the communion table, is a horn blast for every Christian. It's a reminder, not of the death of the King of Rohan, but of the King who came first riding on a donkey, but he will return in all his glory. And so Jesus says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until that day when I return in my father's kingdom. Let me tell you, Christian friend, you live between those two comings, the first and second coming of Jesus. And the Lord's table not just reminds us of Jesus' death, but also of his return when he returned to judge the living and the dead. And we draw every one of his suffering, guilt laden people to himself. And that's why Jesus says, take and eat, apply the truth of the gospel through the table and do this every time in remembrance of me.